Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Neil Selwyn and in this podcast we're going to be asking three Monash University academics to clear up some persistent myths about education. Do we all have our own fixed learning styles? Are good school leaders simply born that way? Are younger generations all digital natives who are itching to learn through technology? My three guests think not and are here to explain why. First up is Professor Dragan Gazovic talking about learning styles. Now it's long been popular to talk about someone being a visual learner or having a kinesthetic learning style. But as Dragan argues, this is all plausible, but perhaps not completely accurate. The whole idea of learning styles come from the 60s, uh, when people were trying to explain much more what we are trying to do with our learners to help them better learn and how we are also doing our instruction. So then people start to really think about different topologies or, so to say, types of learners. And at kind of that point in time, it seemed interesting to think about the idea to bucket people into those that are kind of having particular styles to learn. Those that are preparing, for example, certain presentation of information they are trying to work with and also preferred style of processing that information and kind of preferences with respect to presentation are kind of well known like for example visual versus verbal learner and respect to processing that information whether I'm actually learning better by doing something or by just that I'm more reflective learner. So the kind of at the core of that idea of uh, learning style is that we have so-called meshing hypothesis. The idea is to match the learner with the right type of instruction and with the right type of presentation of information. What we have with research is that no research done in a very robust way is really proving this meshing hypothesis. So there were really very few studies that were conducted in this rigorous manner. None really proved this hypothesis. So we have no single evidence. But even beyond that, just to determine what would be the learning styles of people, we have to use certain measurement instruments. And research also on measurement of learning styles is proving there are no valid instruments that are meeting all the psychometric criteria. So meaning that we are trying to assign or bundle people to certain types, except we don't know how to measure it, and there's no evidence that it is really improving learning whatsoever. So then the question is what to do without learning styles. Well, there's plenty of good things in education of the psychology that are doing. First of all, instead of basically looking into preferences of people, look into the ability of people, cognitive and metacognitive ability. And on this note of metacognitive research, there's plenty of really, really high quality research on something which is established as study tactics or something which is also bundled or labeled as desirable difficulties. There's really talking about how we are managing effectively our memory and our meta memory, and basically how we can then practice recall of certain information and how we can also overall practice retrieval of certain information from our memory. So for example, tactics such as, for example, self-testing or spacing effect are well known. But in addition to that, there are also some very promising other types of tactics that are, for example, uh, emphasizing highlighting of certain information and trying to really kind of engage deeper with information people are interacting with rather than to really build on the myth of preferential learning styles. 
Next, let's hear from Dr. Amanda Heffernan, a Monash academic whose work focuses on educational leadership. Now, one of the recurring myths around school leadership is the belief that good leaders are simply born that way. This is the assumption that you can't teach someone to be a good school principal. Instead, leadership is an innate quality. But as Amanda explains, behind every school leader is a great deal of support from others. So I don't really know where it originated, but there's this kind of ongoing idea that um, we have these people that are just born to take on leadership positions, that they can come in, um, and we have this kind of idea of a heroic leader that um, doesn't really need any support or training or anything, and they can come in and fix everything. Um, And when we're in a world at the moment where everything needs fixing, um, these kind of ideas seem to be um, taken up a lot. I don't believe that the the work of a school leader at least can be done by one person. It's too big for one person and we know that it's much more effective when people um, do share that leadership load with other people, um, not just because it's more manageable for them but because other people will bring a diversity of ideas um, and um, experiences to um, the sorts of decisions that are happening every day in schools as well. We see these people in popular culture. We see people like Steve Jobs being held up as being this incredible person that came in and had all these great ideas. Um, And so it's something that I suppose we feel like we want to see or we would love to be led by someone who is this amazing, charismatic, heroic leader. I think it's a a real issue because the idea that you have to be a born leader can potentially put people off that don't necessarily have that kind of um, particular approach to leadership or um, way of seeing the world. When we have an increasingly diverse community and student body and um, even staff, um, we're still seeing that the majority of leaders are white middle class people, often men. um, And so it's dangerous to sort of have that as our image of leadership when we need to be able to consider a much more diverse range of people who could take on those roles. So if we're thinking about alternatives um, to the possibilities of um, being born to lead or being that heroic leader, we know that principal preparation programs um, is actually really effective. And what we find is that people who go through formal preparation programs um, are able to sort of pick up those skills and learn those um, particular ways of working with people that work really well in leadership positions um, and that they can um, learn the art of leadership, really. Um, So a lot of those preparation programs, they're giving people um, a bigger picture of um, what it means to be a leader in a school um, and what it means to work with people and to build other people up and, and, um, I guess, develop other leaders along with them, which, again, goes against this idea that there's just a couple of people that you can kind of pick out that can just do the job instantly. So people who um, have been more formally prepared um, will stay in the job for longer. They'll be more satisfied in the job which then has really important flow-on effects for their schools and their school community and the people that they work with as well because longevity in leadership in schools in particular is a really important thing that um, we're coming to understand needs to be a bigger focus of um, a lot of the work of school systems. Last up, let's hear from Dr Carla Perotta a Monash academic whose work focuses on digital education. Now, one of the recurring myths in the area of digital education is the idea of the digital native. This is the assumption that younger generations are naturally attuned to using digital technologies and much prefer to learn online and on screen. 
But as Carlo explains, this is a neat idea, but it's not necessarily supported by theory or evidence. The digital natives idea is a stubborn label that does not want to die. The idea of digital natives, you know, is mostly credited to Mark Prensky, a public speaker and a thinker who wrote an article in 2001 introducing this distinction between digital natives and digital immigrants. The natives are those born generally after 1980, uh, who, according to Prensky, only experienced digital technology uh, throughout their lives and cannot remember a time when digital technology was not such a pervasive presence. So according to Prensky, this constant immersion in technology from birth has uh, um, some kind of neurological, psychological, you know, a number of influences uh, on, on this demographic. And the implication for education is that this generation learns better in technology-rich environments. They are very good at multitasking. They are visual learners and other things. Well, the evidence from educational research actually tells a different story. Of course, young people have specific and uh, generational, you might say, ways of engaging with digital technologies. But the idea that, that they might be um, more proficient by default, or that their brains have developed or somehow mutated to um, accommodate a technology-rich world, is of course bullshit. One myth that really needs to be, go, to be dispelled, needs to go away, you know, in relation to digital natives, is that um, exposure to technology from birth causes neuroplasticity actual changes in the brain. Now, this is a typical case of how a grain of empirical truth is misrepresented to fit a particular narrative. Of course, there is evidence about neuroplasticity, and it is true that the human brain changes over the life cycle, you know, over, over time. But these changes are um, associated with either big traumas or broad lifestyle patterns. The reason why uh, this idea has survived for so long is because it has first and foremost market appeal. Um, it is basically a convenient shortcut to do some quick and dirty market segmentation. And the bottom line is basically this. If somebody is still talking about digital natives in 2019, they are probably trying to sell you something. So, well, the broad advice to educators here is just to be skeptical and circumspect when it comes to, you know, ideas such as digital natives. The most important thing about technology use among young people is the need to avoid determinism, the idea that technology somehow determines aspects of personal and social life. What research actually suggests is that pre-existing social and economic arrangements, things like class, status, family background, where one lives, such as you know, the global north as opposed to the global south, all of these things, all of these factors can explain better large-scale differences in technology use and misuse among young people. So there we have it. It seems that some assumptions about education might be simply too good to be true. Now, holding on to these simple explanations certainly makes things easier to deal with when you're in the classroom, but these broad brush generalizations seem to be more of a hindrance than a help when trying to improve education. So as our three guests have argued, Education is a complex and difficult process with no easy explanations or no simple answers. So the next time someone tells you that there is a simple, common-sense explanation for what's going on in school these days, feel free to tell them to think otherwise. It seems that very little in life is quite as straightforward as we think it is, and that definitely goes for education. <laughs>